Welcome to the Building Beloved Community Podcast. We We are are the Beloved community. Community. And we are striving to cultivate an environment which is founded in truth, aiming for justice and equity, and moving towards reconciliation for all people, regardless of race, gender, or socioeconomic background. Let's discuss how we can make the world we live in a more beloved community. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of the Building Beloved Community Podcast. I'm today's host, Trey Irby, an intern at the Beloved Community Center in Greensboro, North Carolina. As you heard a few moments ago, our work is a constant striving to cultivate an environment which is founded in truth, aiming for justice and equity, and moving towards healing and reconciliation for all people. I know I speak for the entire Beloved Community Center family when I tell y'all just how excited we are to get this first episode out. What you're about to hear is a powerful conversation between myself and the co-executive directors of the Beloved Community Center, Reverend Nelson Johnson and Ms. Joyce Hobson Johnson. As lifelong grassroots community organizers, these two respectively have incredible stories of struggle, resilience, and resistance. Stories that aren't uncommon to black folk who grew up during integration, the civil rights era of the 60s, and the black power movement of the 70s. We all felt it was of the utmost importance before we began discussing the intricacies of our work at BCC or our newest initiative, the North Carolina Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission process, to lay a foundation of understanding of the folks guiding this movement forward. I could go on and on about how much of an honor it was to listen to their histories as a young black community organizer, but I really want y'all to hear this. Thanks again for tuning in. Here's my conversation with Reverend Nelson Johnson and Joyce Johnson of the Beloved Community Center. I just want to express my gratitude to you both, Rev J and Miss J, for being able to guide this first episode. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with y'all, and I know folks tuning in feel the same. Y'all are civil rights leaders. And you've been involved in countless movements and organizations in the Greensboro area and beyond. As an archiving intern here at BCC, I've had the amazing opportunity to sift through so many papers and photos which document your history in such a detailed way. And yet, I still can't tell your story as well as you can. In your own words, how would you describe yourself and your journey that led you to Beloved Community Center? I characterize myself as a social and economic justice movement leader. And though I'm not a clergy person, I'm also a spiritual leader, especially among women. Really, I think my consciousness began as a child and grew from there. This was just because of the circumstances of my birth, really. Um, The circumstances being that I was born into poverty and being born into a black family in these United States. I was always conscious of the inequities that I lived under and that others lived under. And it seems like I was just always um, debating in my mind with my friends a sense of commitment to making a change. I knew things weren't right, and I wanted to make a change. What I learned and what I was taught in Sunday school and the Girl Scouts and just certainly from my family and community um, helped me become who I am. They really instill in me a sense of family, a sense of community. I can remember so clearly my grandmother saying things like, you're doing this because this person is family. But then the family grew more and more to people who weren't even related to me. 
So clearly family was more than blood relationships. The particular story I wanted to share was being born two months early in December 1946 at home where a potbelly stove was literally the incubator for me. I've heard so many stories as I grew up of people holding me on a pillow because I was so small and fragile that they feared I would die. But my grandmother had this conviction that it would not be wise to send my mother and me to the hospital. She feared that white people wouldn't care anything about this black baby. This baby would die, she felt. So she and the community really, literally, the ones who made sure that I lived. So I got a sense of family and community from the very beginning. I got a sense that my existence, my positive existence, is due to someone striving and sacrificing for me. I feel like I've just been called from my youth to do this type of community building work. And I'm happy I've been able to answer that call, even while raising a family of my own, having a career, and all of that at the same time. It's just a part of the fabric that's now called Joyce. Wow. You've certainly carried on that legacy of community building, and I've definitely witnessed that in your work today. I know it's been extremely impactful to other people as well. Rev. J., would you tell us a bit more about your early life experience and the events that shaped your lifelong pursuit of community building, justice, and equity? I think the uh, environment that you grow up in informs a lot of who you think you are until you get old enough to probe that some. I grew up in a rural community that was all black, had virtually no contact with white people except buying something. All the schools were segregated. And I inherited from my mother and from my father stories about their struggle, stories about the term they used was the white man. That was a generic term for white people. I inherited more of that from the church that I was a part of that often talked about God not being pleased with some people believing that they were better than others, treating people in uh, belittling ways. So when I went on to school, I think I carried those views in me. When I graduated from high school, I joined the United States Air Force. That was the first uh, meaningful contact that I had with white people. My bunkmate, we were in box one on the lower and higher level, was a white guy from West Virginia, Hosseini. Uh, hanging out with Hosseini, we had to make up our beds together. We had to do everything together real quick. Otherwise, we both get penalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say penalized, turning over your footlock and making you do everything all over again. We learned to work together. I didn't learn much about him, though. It was later on that I had a roommate named Reddy from Augusta, Georgia, that uh, we actually had discussions about the race question. They weren't deep, but they were meaningful. While in the military, uh, my consciousness grew as I more and more connected to African-Americans who were a lot more conscious than I was. Many from the larger cities, from 
formative years as a child, there's always been a sense of being black and being devalued and being mistreated. So I brought all of that with me into adulthood. The beloved community that you and Miss Joyce have and are working to build is totally counter to what society taught you as a young person. I think it would have been understandable, Rev, if you held on to that anger and resentment that you felt towards society. And, I mean, it tried to devalue you and people that look like you. However, throughout the various initiatives and movements, the through line has always been an appreciation and uplifting the inherent, often unrealized value of each person. And I find that very powerful. I'm curious to know more about the events that propelled you deeper into community building, though. Like, what work did you do as young adults during the 60s and 70s? Miss J, would you tell us a bit more about your life in this time? Well, let me context. When I was a teenager, um, as I said, I was born in 46. As the civil rights movement was um, percolating, I was coming into teenagehood. After the A&T 4, also known as the Greensboro 4, sat down at Woolworths, I was still in high school and got really excited when we heard about these folks sitting at the lunch counters because of my friends and I would go to a place called the White Tower. And it was a a hamburger place, a a grill. But, you know, we had to go to the side door to, to order. We would intensely make huge orders. And then when the worker would turn around to start flipping the burgers, whatever, we'd all run out. We were objectively protesting. It's like, you don't let us sit down, but we can at least mess up your bottom line. I now know how dangerous that was, but it was just some of that um, inner sense of justice and, and exacting it yourself. And, and I know many, many other young people did similar kinds of things. I joined with church leaders to go downtown um, Richmond, um, protesting in marches, going to city council meetings, you know, objectively emulating the sit-ins that we saw in Greensboro. So that's how I really started. But the roots were sown in me much, much earlier. Reverend Johnson, you talked earlier about how from an early age, much like Miss J, you recognized the disparities between how blacks and whites were treated. Can you talk a bit more about when that mere recognition and awareness as a young black person shifted into action? You know, in high school, My family talked a lot about their situation and their history and their treatment. And I was wondering, why didn't we do something about this? I didn't realize people were doing something. It sounded to me that uh, when I grow up, I'm going to challenge this white man. That was kind of what was in my childhood mind. I did grow up. (laughs) And uh, I ran for student government president. At our small black high school, I won. And I was sent to the State Student Council Convention in Gastonia. Uh, It was the longest bus trip that I've ever taken, along with the person with me, James Eton, uh, decided that we were going to sit on the front seat of the bus or near the front of the bus because the year before, my brother was at A&T. 1960 in the sit-in movement, James Eton and I went out. Nobody said anything. 
at first, but people started throwing paper onto us. And then we heard murmuring about in people stay in your place and these people are getting out of hand. And then a guy stood up and just against my head. It was most humiliating. Nobody on the bus said anything. We were terrified, you know. So we both got up, went to the back of the bus. We were in a a bus full of white people with no help. So I got back and I told my dad. He told me to tell the principal. So I went to Mr. Finch, who was our principal, and told him I wanted to report this. He said, Nelson, I don't want you to do that. Because if you uh, share that story, it will hurt us getting the resources we need in Halifax County for MacIver High School. So I ate it, you know, I just ate it and really didn't talk about it much at all until uh, years later. When I went to Europe, I um, was on a Canadian base. It was there that Malcolm was killed, and the headline said, Live by the sword, die by the sword. When we got into the Black Corner, there's a place in the barrack where Black military people gathered, and they were angry and saying what they would do and this and that. At this time, I had been drawn to King, and I said, well, I really respect Malcolm. I said, but I'm more a follower of King. And that's when they just dressed me down. They said, "Uh, brother, you crazy. Here you are over here guarding nuclear weapons with an M1 around your shoulder, 45 on your hip, talking about some nonviolence, you know. And I had to check myself out. I was saying, how do I work this out? So I started to evolve a different understanding of what had to be done. It seems that even when you all were teenagers, you realized the power of resistance, no matter how small you perceived your influence to be. And in all the environments you were in, they challenged your understanding of society and helped cultivate a different awareness, like you said, Rev. J, of what was necessary to make a real deep and lasting change. Ms. J., as you transitioned into adulthood, having graduated from Duke, you met Reverend Johnson and came to live in Greensboro. That's where you became immersed in grassroots organizing works, the both of you, really, labor struggles and other initiatives that you had going on at the time. I'd love to know more about the beginnings of your time here in Greensboro. Before we get into uh, Greensboro, um, I was struck by what Nelson mentioned regarding the uh, dilemma that he found himself in at different points. And I think that really is a characteristic that all of us face at different points in time. I also remember the dilemmas when I was a student at at Duke from 64 to 68. Duke integrated with, I think, three or four students in 63. So I came the second year. Well, the day I came to Duke, I had to take the Greyhound bus. My folks were first of all scared about me going to Duke for fear in my life, but also they had to work. There was one car, so I took the bus by myself. But as I came into the Durham bus station, there were Klan marching. I knew about the Klan, but I'd never really seen Klan's person up close. So I had to really think hard. That was on, the, on the one hand was this affirmation of my academics that I'm going to Duke University. 
but I was going with the intention of proving that Black people could go to these schools, finish in four years, come out and whatever. It wasn't like we were dumb. I had to think hard about, hmm, <laughs> I'm down here by myself and it's a state away, but it's further south. Am I going to be able to do this? Have you done the right thing? You know, is this safe? Is this wise? Is this worth it? You know, but I decided I had to. The point I'm making is that at every point there was a decision to figure out how to overcome this hurdle and keep going or to give in to the pressure. And that we still face that today. And, and that would be one thing I would say to young people. You've heard me say making a way out of no way. There were a lot of places where there were no way, as far as I knew. But the key was whether you persisted to get there. So, and I know that's been true in Nelson's stories, as he told as well. So I just wanted to add that. And I'll toss it back over to him to talk about things in Greensboro. I came to A&T as a student in 1965. I didn't do much serious work. Uh, <laughs> But later on, uh, I got involved in something called GUTS, Greensboro United Tutorial Services. And we went out to public housing communities to tutor children. But I love to sit with them, sometimes on the tree and just talk, you know, little boys and little girls. And But what I bumped into were their parents, um, and they had stories about how they were treated by the housing authority. And they couldn't get screen doors fixed, and they didn't get leniency when they came up short. And that was my introduction to community work in Greensboro. I walked from where I live through that public housing community, and we decided to uh, pull together people in the community. That was the beginning of my community organizing work. And we took busloads of students out there. And we tutored the kids. And then we could talk the Y into taking us to the airport so the kids could see airplanes on the ground. It was a good experience. Guess it all comes back to the kids. That's no surprise seeing as how you always emphasize the importance of a movement that is intergenerational. Something that emphasizes the power of a community where the young and the elders are united. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time in your life? That summer, I got hired by Youth Educational Services. This was an integrated group. There were three black people. All of us were male. And I think four or five white people. One day, we decided to go to... uh, a restaurant really right adjacent to UNCG. And we got focused on a lot. Well, somebody came by and turned over the soda in my lap, just just knocked the glass over. I didn't jump up, but I felt at that point we were under attack. One of the guys with us, Marvin Sparrow, he had on flip-flops and they called the... uh, police and uh, demanded that he leave because he was inappropriately dressed. He wouldn't leave, so the police arrested him and put him in the squad car. When we came out, uh, I saw Klan members in their uniform, so they had rigged this. So Rufus Newland and I decided that we were going to stand for our white brother. He was in the police car, so we sat on the hood of the police car. 
and they ordered us to get off. And we said, we're not getting off. This man shouldn't be arrested. He's with us. We're all together. So they said, you'll stay together. They arrested us and put us in there. That whole experience just magnified the depth of racism. After that, I became much more rededicated to what Black people needed to do. So how did that rededication or recommitment to uplift the Black community shape your work over the next few years? That summer, the next year, we formed something called the Greensboro Association of Poor People. And actually, to this day, that's one of the most effective organizations that I've been a part of. So what we did was to effectively bring together what I call the basement of the community, those who are most marginalized, most oppressed, leaders of the of the community, Mr. Webb, the bank, Mr. Battle, NAACP president, the grassroots of the community, the youth at A&T, at Bennett, and a few from UNCG. We had the Black middle class uh, all coming together. And that's when I could feel the power of community organization. That's when I devoted my life to that. There were just many, many initiatives that we undertook that helped me realize the power of unity. That launched me into the heart of community organizing and to feel the power of a community. When you got the grassroots anchoring it, you got the middle class believing in it, and you have young people surrounding it. But that's always been my vision of what has to happen in order to bring about qualitative change. I joined Nelson in Greensboro in 69 when we got married and immediately became immersed in the work that he was engaged in. But I brought with me several years of leadership on Duke's campus and then at Carolina, organizing with the African-Americans there around um, justice, particularly for the non-academic employees. So I came to Greensboro really in the level of unity already with him before we had met. It's almost like a liberated zone for me in Greensboro, where I met so many Black people who were engaged um, from all strata of the community, you know, the marches and all that type of thing. But the role I quickly began to play, and it was a, a space that needed to be filled, was what we'd see more as the administrative, the management part of it. But what I found, and I've talked to other older Black organizers, women organizers, is that if you really knew how to take a good set of notes, you really helped set the agenda for that movement. And again, I was conscious of that. A lot of folks just felt that they were being dumped on as women. And I struggle sometimes with young women now, is that they're, you know, we're often wired differently. Um, And of course, our understanding of gender has expanded. It's not just a binary kind of thing now, but that depending on how how you're wired, that's the role you need to play and not be so hung up on whether somebody else may be trying to demean you as a matter whether you grab on to the gifts, the talents, the skills, the perception that you have, bring that to the movement, help move the movement forward. Um, so it was a real gift to me to, uh, one, to, to marry him, but to come into this space 
where people were taken serious, what I was being more and more led to of um, change of the social economic structures. Right. And you mentioned socially, economically, racially involving students on college campuses like A&T and Bennett. There were a lot of lines you crossed and a lot of different places that you jumped back into and groups that you tied together, how involved everyone was and it was it would be very hard to separate these people in groups um, and look at them as all these different singular entities. That's a very interesting aspect of movement building to me. And I think it's something that you've actually continued, not just in the past 50 years, but to this day in the work that you're doing now. What would you say it is that really binds all these different things together? Why is it so tightly knit? Mm-hmm. I think Troy, it's really just, um, not just, but very <laughs> significantly of striving to be, but really is the sense that um, there's so much rich potential in each and every person. And if there's a society that um, nurtures that, we really all benefit being a part of this movement of most of my life and coming to the understand that led us basically to what we now call beloved community. And for me, beloved community is a vision. It's really this long-term vision and people have heard Dr. King speak of it. Biblically, we talk about the kingdom of God and you've heard me, if you've heard me more than five minutes, say the dignity, the worth, the equality the enormous potential of every human being is what we're striving for. Beloved community is also um, a methodology. It's how you do your work. That it's not just one or two people making decisions. Okay, we got it. We're going to do this. Go. It really is inviting all the voices into the decision-making. So it's richer. It's harder to do. It takes a little bit more time, but it's more depthful and meaningful. It's a place. So just the fact we have this um, old building on the corner of Arlington and Martin Luther King Jr. right across from the railroad track where the train goes by periodically and the fire engine is ringing and carrying on disrupting stuff. Um, but, then, but then you can see right across that track those tall buildings that represent what's seen as the power of Greensboro. Yet we are aware here that the true power, the people power, is represented by this building where we and when everybody is really welcome, where for years the homeless were fed, where they're still as welcomed as people who carry all kinds of titles. So beloved community is all that, and still we're still striving for it. And now with this truth process that we're on, it's just a natural progression of that, understanding that the lack of understanding, the lack of truth about what factors, forces of creating the world in which we live is what we would be the most important thing we could offer as we are in our older years. We're still fairly vibrant and we're more vibrant with all of y'all around us who are young and healthy and what have you. So it's just a beautiful place, even the fact that every day at beloved community, three generations of us are interacting and, and trying to do this work together. It's a model for the world. So, Ms. Jay, that's beautiful. The whole idea of beloved community and what that means to you. 
And it not just being, you know, a singular thing or necessarily something you arrive at, but also, like you said, just the processes and how you do things. I think that's an excellent vision to strive for. It seems to that you all, like you mentioned, with the uh, implementation of the truth process, I'd like to touch on that a little bit more. That is the most recent endeavor and maybe even the culmination of some of this work that you all have been doing all this time. I'd like to ask you more about that. This truth process and the idea of bringing people together, what it, what exactly is it? What are, what are you trying to achieve? Let me respond by saying that I think it's rooted in the highest potential of humanity. And that is that we humans are capable of um, caring deeply for each other, caring deeply for the world that is given to us. And in that context, uh, and in the context of our nation, struggling for justice, and in that process, affirming the dignity and the worth And what we believe is the unrealized potential, the greater potential of uh, humanity when we come together. We had such a negative experience with falsehood after the 1979 massacres. So not everybody may be familiar, but could you explain to us a little bit more about the events surrounding the Greensboro massacre in 1979? As you and Ms. J have mentioned, there are several turning points in your lives as young organizers. The 1979 Greensboro Massacre was a life-changing experience for the both of you, an experience that informed your work in the many years following and still to this day. I said that we're community organizers. The community includes labor. And so we actually were deeply involved in organizing textile mill workers And because a part of our community didn't work at the mill and a part of it was Black who were left out of the mill, we had set up an event, which was really a conference on November the 3rd, to bring together the predominantly white mill workers, who were Black ones there as well, with the historic Black community and build a beautiful unity. We had succeeded in years earlier of bringing together the middle-class Blacks, the poor Blacks, and the rich Blacks. We felt that this could be done across race lines. And so that's what we were doing, focused on justice in the labor industry. The Greensboro police issued a parade permit. I had the permit and was to meet the uh, Captain Hampton at the starting site. What we didn't know was that they had an agent inside of the Klan and Nazis. They had a meeting called it the Racist United Front, planning to come to Greensboro to actually attack the march. The police knew it, didn't show up, and they rolled in, uh, fired a bullet into the air, and then jumped out of their cars and had long weapons and fired into the crowd. Killed five people wounded 10 others, and terrorized a poor Black community. That's the November 3rd, 1979. With that, um, the city had to blame somebody. 
we were projected as monsters and mean people and evil people and manipulators. Um, that was all false. And there was a deep, compelling need, not for abstract truth, but for profound, factual truth. And that was the genesis, uh, at least in part, of the truth process. It grew out of the absence of truth and the realization of the depths of danger and hurt that that brings. The Greensboro Truth Process has the most notable influence on your current work, the North Carolina Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Process. Could you talk a little bit more about your experience with the Greensboro TRC and what made it so impactful? In that process, an atmosphere was created where people felt, what shall I say, safe in sharing what they actually thought rather than sharing what somebody wanted them to say. And when you're sharing out of your best substance, there could be factual errors in it, but you don't take any special privilege in holding on to things that are not true. In other words, you want the deeper truth to come out. Only the power of truth could break through that wall of falsehood and help this community stagger toward itself. And I'm convinced that if we stay with that struggle, that it can overcome the flood of falsehoods, and it can produce for us a much better society, much better relationship, where we are rooting for the best in each other. Instead of trying to generate falsehoods, which often can bring out the worst in us. And if you mistreat me, I'm going to mistreat you worse than you mistreated me. And so we have now this whole gun thing that's going on, where people are shooting people and killing people. It does not have to be. We believe the key to it is love, and love doesn't exist without truth. We are more than flesh and blood. We are spirit as well. And that spirit keeps on going. It's from everlasting to everlasting. We have to help each other grow into our best spiritual being. And that means the best physical being. I often say there can be no justice without truth. And without justice, there can be no healing of the wounds, no reconciliation, no great coming together of humanity. So that's the urgent necessity of this period in the lives of many people. But I would argue that it is now urgent for the life of the nation to find a way out of this malaise. And we think that truth and justice, reconciliation and healing is that way. And we want to do the best we can to put it in play. Thank you for that powerful message, Reverend Johnson and Ms. Joyce. I'm sure this is resonating with so many folks that are listening. Can you talk a bit more about how we can learn and get more engaged with the NC Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission process and the role of beloved community in this process? You've heard us say that um, all people are important in, the, in a beloved community, they have a role to play, that the, their dignity and worth, their potential must be honored, actually fought for. So all voices of the, these people are important to the North Carolina truth, justice, and reconciliation process. 
until we hear from everybody, particularly those who've been marginalized, we won't even get a chance to have build what we call community truth, where we have an understanding from the various voices, because people living in different circumstances have different understandings and different facts that they've had to engage with. So we need to hear all that. That's one thing we would draw from our beloved community. Another is that we have to have the ongoing movement for justice that we don't envision. We don't want a beautifully written report that sits on a shelf, but that people have not um, incorporated the, the truths, the understanding, the spirit of the sense of why are people poor? Why are people marginalized? Why are some people making all this money and other people barely have lunch money? Some people are just profiting right now from the gas prices, which I now understand are coming down because people stopped buying gas. But that meant if they stopped buying gas, they were not doing some things that might have been vital to their lives. Fighting for justice all along the way is important. It's not just to have a shelf statement but to really actualize things in people's lives. And another real important piece that we've learned from the beloved experience is learning to listen deeply to one another. I would start with listening first to yourself and not just repeating, parroting what the society is saying, what's on the radio, what's on the YouTube, what's on the whatever, Spotify, whatever you listen to but what's resonating in your spirit and your experiences. And then creating settings where you can share those, your truth, your understanding. You may find that some of what you thought was really, really true isn't, <laughs> but you, you learn that in a, a nurturing environment. But listening to other people and understanding who they are, what motivates them. And our view is that the essence of it, the humans are humans created by God, but we have all these social, human social constructs that divide us up. So listening, listening, listening is important. And then, and sports fans like my husband might not agree with me on this, but life is not a baseball game or football game for me, (laughs) where somebody wins and somebody loses. But life is more an unfinished picture where there are all these pieces of um, different colors and different depths and configurations that are being woven together in this picture. And for me, community is one that is constantly being built and added to as new individuals and circumstances come into it. But the thing is, if there's a an open canvas situation or access to all the palettes of color by everybody that we can build a beautiful picture. So for me, um, beloved community offered that possibility of this more uh, beautiful interactive picture. And, but I know we can't do that if we're not dealing with the truth, the basis for the inequities and the possibilities for the equities and really the, the moral fiber for all of us being um, built up. I've learned from and will carry from beloved community into this truth process. Thank you both so much for being with us today and giving us the 
scoop on this truth process. I mean, this is major stuff. I think, uh, we, like you said, we need it now more than ever. We're at, we're at a bit of a tipping point and, uh, it's really important work along with everything else that you've done up until this point. And we look forward to hearing from you again and seeing more ways to get involved. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of the Building Beloved Community Podcast. At the Beloved Community Center, our mission is to forge and continually expand a quality of leadership and beloved community to guide Greensboro, North Carolina and beyond into a new era of equitable economic sufficiency, peace, social, gender, and racial justice that can serve as a model and inspiration for others, our region, our nation, and our world. For more information on our important social justice work, you can visit our website at belovedcommunitycenter.org, reach out by phone at 336-230-0001, or follow us on our social media by checking out the episode description. Let us all continue walking towards each other.